Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 142. This is The Thing in the Air, part four, and I want to give you an introduction to Third Way. And if you hear any interesting noises on this episode, uh, there's a dog here in the back house with me, and then there is a seven-year-old girl who happens to be our daughter, and she is hanging on silks, you know, like Cirque Soleil, those strips of silk that hang from the ceiling. So she is behind me and up above me, close to the ceiling. <laughs> and uh, so just want to say up front, any interesting noises, it um, could be any one of several things. Now, uh, I want to share with you an idea that has profoundly impacted how, well, actually how I see everything. And uh, when I first came across it and was introduced to it, it, I was just like, oh my word, this would change the world. And every time I get to share it with people, it's so interesting how many people say, that's like one of the best ideas ever. And uh, so I want to introduce you to Third Way. But before we do that, I have, I don't, I don't know, I guess it's an announcement. Um, and it's funny because... This knowing this episode was coming and that I would get to make this announcement at some point in the future, um, now it's here. So I have a new book coming out, and it comes out on May 16th, and it's called What is the Bible? How an Ancient Library of Poems, Letters, and Stories Can Transform the Way You Think and Feel About Everything. So when you put out a book, uh, like at the publisher, uh, probably a year before the release date, everything really gets cranking. It takes about a year to um, just, not even writing the book, but just all of the groundwork that needs to be laid for a good launch. So one of the first questions I always ask is, okay, when does the book come out? And then when do we first let people know that the book is coming? And uh, for me, the way that I tell people what I'm up to is first and foremost through the Robcast. So I have had this first Robcast episode in March in my head for quite a while now as the episode I would get to tell you that a book is coming, which is like a really big deal. Um, this book was interesting because I noticed over the years, I mean, I've been giving sermons for about 25 years, but I noticed how many people I would talk about some place in the Bible and they would say, I've never heard that. That's such a completely different reading. I always thought that story was about this, but you're showing me all this context and insight and subtlety and nuance that, that totally makes that a completely different kind of story. And I noticed it, especially among my friends who wouldn't consider themselves religious at all, like my friend Glenn, big shout out, hey Glenn, who would be like, dude, that stuff on the Bible that you do, that stuff, you should do that. Um, and as obviously, if you listen to these, um, to this broadcast on a regular basis, I'll often take a passage from the Bible that many people see as a primitive, backwards, barbaric myth and fairy tale. And I'll show you how at that time and that place, it was actually a step forward. And, uh, just for years I've been doing this. And then I thought, you know, it'd be interesting. I got to I should just write all this up because I've got like 25 years of Bible stuff in my head. Uh, and so we go anywhere in the Bible and I'll be like, oh my word, do you know about this? And what about that? And have you seen this? And notice how it connects to that. Like, um, it's like jazz. We could just jam for hours. And so about three, 
was it about th- about three years ago, yeah, the fall of 13, I thought, I should just start writing all this up. It's almost like freeing up RAM space in my head. You know what I mean? I should just get this all out of my head onto the page. But I thought I should just do it like a, I should do a part a day. I should just every day type something out about the Bible. And um, so I picked Tumblr and I started doing a post every day on Tumblr, a writing about something in the Bible. And I mean, within a week, the feedback, it was unbelievable. Who would think? At that point, it was 2013. Who would think that writing about the Bible in 2013 and the politics and the economics and the psychology and all of the complicated, interesting things happening in the Bible that most people just have no aware of, the evolving human consciousness, which you see reflected in these ancient poems, letters, and stories, um, a lot of people just don't know that's what the Bible is. And I started thinking, well, I should call it, what is the Bible? Because that just made me laugh. Um, And here's what's fascinating. I was just posting these parts for free on Tumblr, and within a couple of weeks, every day people would say, when will this be available as a book? And I would literally sometimes like write back, help me understand how I'm giving you this for free on Tumblr, and your first response is, this should be a book. Um, And people are like, no, this should be a book. So since then, for three years, I've been editing, tweaking, adding, um, improving, arranging this material. And uh, this book is by far my longest book. I think it's twice as long as uh, Love Wins. So it's a like from my perspective, I work very, very hard to make my book short. Um, I work very hard if it can be said in a sentence and it's a paragraph, then just keep working until you can get it to a sentence. If it takes a page, could you get it down to a paragraph? Um, I don't want to waste anybody's time, and I want my writing to be dense, to have lots of depth and weight to it. So I work very hard to make my books as short as possible, but this one refused <laughs> brevity. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big, long book, and I am so excited for you to read it. So. This is, uh, you know, drum roll, trumpets, parade, whatever it is. This is official um, announcement that What is the Bible uh, releases May 16th. Um, If you can pre-order it now, and we set it up so that you can go to my site and you can pre-order it and then get some bonus content that's not in the book. And then I'll do uh, a bookstore tour I'll tell you more about, and then uh, there may even be some other tours surrounding the book, but um, really huge thing. And it's so interesting to me. It was actually like putting the mic, setting the mic up just now to do this. There's like this emotional, um, oh, wow, I get to tell my Robcast friends that I made another book. Um, and I think this is like my 10th or 11th book, and yet um, it's it's, as the great artist Robert Irwin said in his 80s, the wonder is still there. I still am in awe that I could make something and then I could share it with people. And, um, you know, that's just, that's a joy that I can't quite put in words. So uh, there you go. What is the Bible? 
coming, uh, available now wherever fine books are sold, and uh, you'll be hearing more about it. And um, so, that said, now let's segue into, I've been doing the series, The Thing in the Air, talking about politics and power and counter-narratives, and last week we talked about the Cowboys versus the Packers, and we're talking about how to stay calm and grounded-centered when it feels like the power structures and the people who have their hands on the reins have lost the plot. And uh, so today, I want to introduce you to third-way thinking, because I think we need it more than ever. It's not a new idea. It's a very ancient idea. But I am absolutely convicted that we need third-way thinking more than ever. Now, to do that, I want to begin with a phrase that is a couple thousand years old. You've probably heard this phrase before. And I want to show you where this phrase come, came from as a way of getting you in to this idea of third-way thinking. So, the phrase is, turn the other cheek. I'm assuming you've heard this phrase. I guess I'm supposed to turn the other cheek. You know what? I'm just going to turn the other cheek. You've probably heard this phrase before. And oftentimes, uh, at least in my observation, the phrase is what somebody says when some wrong has been done to them and they are resigned to powerlessness. I guess there's nothing I can do. I'm just supposed to take it. Uh, you know, it's just one of those situations where you just got to turn the other cheek. Now, I want to show you where the phrase comes from and what it meant in its original setting so that you can hopefully see it in a completely different light. And by the way, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Okay. Jesus said it, so it's a line from Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, and what he says is, if anybody hits you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well, which would be the left cheek. Now, in the first century, your hands were used for different things. Your right hand was the hand that you would use to hit somebody. That was the hand, you know, like the right hand of God. Hand was power exercise, domination, your left hand was what you would use for personal grooming, everyday maintenance of your orifices. Are you with me now? So the left hand is not a hand that you would touch people with. When you hit somebody, you would hit them with the right hand, and there were two ways to hit somebody in the first century. There was a punch, like with a fist, and then there was a slap with the back of the hand. Now, a punch with the fist was how you would strike someone who was your equal. A punch was for an equal. And remember, first century culture, a bit like ours, but even more codified, was incredibly hierarchical. And everybody knew where they were in the hierarchy. Masters, slaves, men, women, Every, children at the very bottom, everybody knew where they were in the hierarchy, and a punch was somebody was for somebody who was at your same place. Now, a slap with the back of the hand was how you hit somebody who was below you in the hierarchy. Punch equal slap someone who's below you. So when Jesus says, if anybody hits you on the right cheek, well, picture yourself facing someone. Now, picture yourself holding up your right fist. And by the way, if any of you 
are listening to this in a group setting that's not like in a moving vehicle or something, and you can act this out, tell me you're going to figure out a way. I'm just going to say it right now. So good. Tell me you're not going to find a way to somehow act this out um, and maybe even have something so good in the process. So you're facing each other. One of you holds up your right fist. Now it says, if anybody hits you on the right cheek, now face somebody and try to make your right fist connect with their right cheek. See how you have to like bend your wrist? It, like it's very awkward. So when he says, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, uh, that's not a punch. But now open up your hand as a slap. You're facing the person and try to hit them with the back of your right hand. Easy. In fact, a lot of... Um, some newer translations actually translate it if anyone slaps you on the right cheek because that's actually a better way to think about it. Now, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. So if you can see just by acting it out that the hit is a slap, not a punch, then if somebody hits you, if somebody is above you, on the social hierarchy and slaps you, meaning you are beneath them. Are you with me now? Turn to them the other cheek as well. Okay, now picture yourself facing somebody. You have just slapped them. They now turn their left cheek toward you. Now think about your right hand. Think about trying to slap with your right hand somebody's left cheek. Very awkward. You have to bend your hand all the way, almost doesn't work. So the only way to now hit this person will be now make a fist. See, if someone shows you their left cheek, fist, much easier. Some of you are like, the lights are coming on. You're, are you with me here? So good. D do you realize what this is? Somebody treats you. They slap you. They treat you less than them, like you're below them. Turn to them the left cheek. So if they want to hit you again, they would have to hit you as an equal. Now, why is this so huge? Imagine a slave and a slave owner. Imagine a Roman, the oppressor, who has invaded well, this is a teaching of Jesus, first century Israel, you lived in a hierarchical culture. All of the time, Jesus's audience was being dehumanized and slapped around. And essentially, he says, somebody slaps you because they believe that they are better than you, higher than you. Turn to them the left cheek. Now, imagine a courtyard. Imagine there is an owner of an estate, and this owner has a whole group of slaves, and the owner slaps one of the slaves because he sees himself as above the slave. The slave then turns and offers his left cheek. Now the owner, what does the owner do? If the owner then punches the slave with a fist, because that's the only way to get out a left cheek, what has the owner just done? The owner has just disrupted the entire hierarchy has acknowledged the slave as his equal. But if the owner does nothing, then this powerless slave has actually one-upped the owner. And the owner looks powerless and kind of pathetic in light of all the other. This would threaten 
the entire social hierarchy. Tell me this isn't, whew. Now, here's what's fascinating. And a lot of people, if you were to say, well, what comes after the turn the other cheek? They go, well, you know what comes after the other cheek? If anyone, Jesus continues. It's like he's on, a, he's like on fuego, he's on fire. He adds to it. What follows is, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat. Now, sometimes it gets translated, if somebody sues you and takes your cloak, give to them your tunic. Also, you'll see a, a number of different words for the two garments. Here's what it means. In the first century, people generally wore two garments. They wore an inner garment, which was like a tunic or a shirt up against your skin, and that you would have had an outer garment, like a cloak, that you would have used like a blanket for sleeping that would have protected you from the weather, etc. So people had two layers of clothing. Now, what Jesus says, following the, if anybody slaps you, turn to them the left cheek. He says, now, if anyone wants to sue you and they've taken your shirt, hand over your coat. Or if somebody sues you and takes your cloak, hand over your tunic. Now, why is this so mind-blowing? Okay. What you had in the first century was something called triple taxation. This group of Jewish people, these Israelites, had been conquered by the Roman Empire, this global military superpower. Very, very oppressive, nasty. And the Romans were taxing the Israelites. Imagine, by the way, if a country right now invaded your country and then started charging you taxes. They willfully dominated your country there were soldiers marching in the streets, and then they levied massive taxes on you. Can you imagine the burning resentment? Now, that meant that your average, everyday, good Jewish family had what's called triple taxation. You had your regular taxes to the temple. Now, the temple had become correct, the, had become corrupt. You would pay a temple tax, and the idea was that the temple tax would then be distributed to help feed the poor. But what had happened is the temple was under the control of a very wealthy group called the Sadducees who were becoming extremely wealthy by taking this temple tax that was supposed to be handed to the poor and keeping it for themselves. They have excavated, uh, I believe it's the south side of the south wall um, hill in the city of Jerusalem. They have excavated Sadducee homes and dug up like $5,000 bottles of wine. So massive wealth. So your taxes are going to make this corrupt religious bureaucracy and the people who run it even more wealthy. Then secondly, the Herodians, which were very violent people who were sort of the local government, they taxed you and then the Romans taxed you. So what had happened is lots of hardworking, God-honoring first century Jewish people were getting taxed so much. Some estimates are they were being taxed 90% of their income. And what had happened is good families were losing their family lands. Like let's say you own a vineyard. It's been in your family for hundreds of years and you are paying the taxes. And by the way, a Roman tax collector could charge you anything he wanted, keep whatever he wanted as long as he paid a certain amount to central command. So there were people taking advantage of you left and right. And what had happened is there was these corporate, essentially corporate business landowners that were swooping in and taking advantage of these good, 
humble Jewish families. And when they were finding themselves in debt, they would buy out their land as a way of helping them get out of debt. But sometimes they get even farther into debt and you had lots and lots of good people spiraling farther and farther into debt where a few people at the top were making more and more money. Once again, completely different than the world nowadays. So, you know, try to relate. <laughs> that was a sad joke. Now, uh, what would happen if you were way, way, way in debt is somebody might come after you and demand that you start turning over your possessions to uh, pay off the debt. So you might pay off, you might start, uh, you might have to hand over all your animals. You might have to hand over your land. And if somebody kept coming after you, if you were in such bad financial situation, they could eventually start taking your closest possessions. And if they were ruthless, they might even sue you for your cloak. Now imagine how completely degrading and dehumanizing it would be. So when Jesus said, if someone wants to sue you and take your cloak, if somebody is coming after you with that kind of vengeance, that kind of ruthless greed, and you are literally down to no possessions, you have nothing left but the two layers of clothing on your back, and they take your cloak. Like this would be, uh, this would be such unbearable public shame. If you are so low that somebody has literally sued you for the very coat that you're wearing, Jesus says, hand over your tunic as well. Now, what is this? Important to understand, the tunic then was the, was the garment closest, to, it's the only garment you had left on. Under that, you were in your birthday suit. Now, remember, in Jewish culture, nudity had this very interesting implication. It, if you found yourself naked in public, the shame was less on you and more on the person who viewed your nakedness. In first century Jewish culture, the real shame was the person who viewed someone else's nakedness, which is why when Noah, after the boat ride, gets drunk and his sons see him, the shame is on them. And that's why there's that whole curse thing that happens in that story is because it's the viewing of nudity was the thing that you didn't want to be in the presence of. So, a legal proceeding like this would probably happen at the city gate, there would probably be all the elders and established leaders of the town around. You're having this very, very tense, absolutely humiliating trial where you are having your coat sued and your aggressor, your oppressor is not letting up. They are literally taking everything you have. Jesus says, if you find yourself in one of these incredibly dehumanizing moments when you are being pursued and wronged on this scale, give to them your tunic also. What's he saying? What is he saying? Right there in front of everybody, basically start, start disrobing, start stripping. Yeah, yeah. Because what does that do then? Well, your oppressor who has all the power does not want to be guilty of causing someone's public nudity because that would bring shame on your oppressor. What would your oppressor probably do as you start to like, da-na-na-na, you start pulling the tunic off, 
there's always the chance that your oppressor would wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Yeah. Now we'll come back to that in a second. Because if I were to say to you, after the turn the other cheek and the, we'll give them your tunic as well, what does Jesus follow that up with? Okay. And now this, this is the one, two, three punch that's just. Then Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Now, how many of you have heard this phrase, go the extra mile? I know. We hear it all the time, but people do it like they say things like, well, you know, I'm bringing, I'm bringing two different kinds of dessert to the barbecue, right? Because, oh man, you know, Shirley, she's just, she just goes the extra mile. <laughs> okay. Have you heard that right? The going the extra mile is basically somebody who like does something extra or does something generous. Let me give you a little background on what going the second mile, the extra mile, actually meant. Hopefully by now you're like, wait, this might be far more profound than I originally thought it was. And you are correct, my Robcast friends. Now, remember that these were people who had been conquered by one global military superpower after another. Now it was the Romans. So you had generations of shame about, basically you'd had the boot of a different empire on your neck for a number, for hundreds of years. And now the Romans had invaded, and you had Roman soldiers marching in the streets. And according to Roman law, Roman military law, a soldier could ask a civilian or just your average everyday Jewish person to carry his pack, like a heavy sort of backpack that had all the supplies in it. And you, under Roman military law, had to submit and carry his pack. So imagine you and your family are, uh, imagine it's Sabbath, and you're going to the synagogue. Imagine it's uh, a beautiful morning, and you and you're, you're walking your kids to school. You're going to the market, and a Roman soldier comes over and says, you, carry my pack. By the way, uh, if, if you can picture sort of 2,000 years ago, what would normally carry packs and weights and luggage? Um, mules, right? Donkeys animals, horses. So a Roman soldier essentially treating you like an animal. Hey, you, carry my pack. And you would have to do it. These were the kinds of everyday humiliations, microaggressions might be the 2017 term, that were happening all the time, all over the place with Jesus's first century audience. So imagine it's a beautiful day and you have to say to your kids, I'll be back, I guess, in a while. And then you would on these hot, dusty roads, carry some soldier's pack while he walked behind you as if you're an animal. Now, one small detail. According to Roman military law, a soldier could only ask a civilian to carry his pack one mile. So what does Jesus say? If anyone forces you to go one mile, when you reach the one mile mark, keep going. Keep going. Now, the moment you enter into the second mile, what is now at stake? What happens if that soldier's superior, general, lieutenant, colonel, whatever, what if that soldier's superior sees that soldier having you carry his pack more than one mile? He could get in serious trouble. And the Romans didn't 
mess around with infractions of laws. Is that safe to say? These are the people who basically fine-tuned crucifying. I mean, these were masters of discipline, threat, torture, and punishment. So the moment you cross that one mile line and you enter into the second mile, the soldier is now running a great risk that he is going to get caught. What does the soldier probably do? The soldier probably will say, whoa, 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 because now the soldier is in danger of serious implications. Now, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the also. If anyone sues you and takes your coat, give them the tunic also. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Now, I know, it's a lot, isn't it? Here we go. Usually in our world, when we are wronged, most of us consider two options. For most of us, the way that we have seen the world, when you are wronged, when you suffer an injustice, when you are dehumanized, for most people in our world, there are two options. The one option is to do nothing. The other option is to do something equally offensive, violent, or antagonistic to get them back. So for most people, when they have something negative come their way, something unjust, for most people, there are two options. Do nothing or do something similar to the thing that was done to you. Now, doing nothing often has a spirit of passivity about it, which generally produces despair. I guess there's nothing, I guess my hands are tied. I guess there's nothing I can do here. And despair is often rooted in powerlessness. There's, I have no options. Doing nothing generally has a passivity spirit about it, which generally creates some form of despair. Doing something similar. You hear that somebody has been spreading rumors about you. What do you often do? Oh, really? Well, you know what they did last summer, right? Or, oh man, I will show them. I will teach them who they're dealing with. When you do something similar back, what you have just done is kept the violence and injustice in circulation. So for many of us, when something comes our way, we either, I guess there's, I, I have no options. I can't do anything. I guess I'm just supposed to take it. Or, oh, I will show them. Get your tickets to the gun show. Tick, thunder and lightning. Let's go. It is on. And you're ready to throw down, which keeps the violence in circulation. Also, if you do get revenge or you do respond in kind, you lose all moral high ground because now you lose all right to say, well, you realize what they did to me because you have now done something similar. And what it does is keep the violence in circulation. It's like, it's like revenge is like a form of ping pong. You do this to me, I do this to you, you do this to me. Maybe you've been in relationships where the two of you got in a pattern of this person, you wound them, they wound you, you wound them, they say this about you, you say something hurtful, and it just, by the way, revenge always escalates. Have you ever gotten uh, even with somebody and been like, excellent, I suddenly feel a strange, warm serenity and peace because I have perfectly 
obtained revenge. No, revenge always escalates. And here's why I say all this. The world-changing brilliance of turn the other cheek, give them your hand over your tunic, go the extra mile, is what Jesus is doing here is he is giving you a third way. He is teaching you third way thinking. It is not the passivity and despair of doing nothing, but it is not a corresponding act of violence, antagonism, or injustice. It is a third thing to turn the other cheek. It is a third thing to hand over your tunic. It is a third thing to go the extra mile. Now, let's fly a little higher and let's move to the next level. How are we doing so far? Is this fun or what? Oh, man. Okay, first, I just want to work through a couple of key words going on here. For example, power. What's fascinating about turning the other cheek is that's doing something. And what you've just done when you've turned the other cheek is you have put the oppressor in an awkward situation because prior to this, the appearance is that the oppressor has all the power and you are powerless. But the moment you turn the other cheek, you are actually flipping power on its head because now the oppressor is in an awkward position. The oppressor actually does hit you that disrupts the entire ecosystem of the entire hierarchy. If the oppressor does nothing, that looks as though you won the round. If you begin to remove your tunic, there is a chance in the example that suddenly your oppressor will say, no, 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 don't do that. No, no, keep your tunic on, keep your tunic on. If the oppressor is saying to you, no, seriously, please keep your tunic on, the oppressor is appealing to you who now has power, but it is a different kind of power. It is not an antagonistic, oppressive power that exploits the powerless. It is a power, Gandhi called it soul force. Is it, a, it is a power rooted in goodness and subversion. And if you go the second mile, there's always this chance that the soldier's like, stop, stop, no, seriously, stop. No, please, would you, no, no. Like, you, you gotta stop no, right now. Like, I can't be seen forcing you to go a second mile. All of the sudden, the person who was previously being treated like an animal has suddenly turned the tables and has power, but it is a different kind of power. It is not a coercive power. It is, uh, it is a power rooted in goodness and subversion. And this, my friends, if you can tap into this, there is a power that comes not from a corresponding act of injustice or violence and not from obviously powerlessness and despair and passivity of doing nothing, but you are messing with the established understandings of who holds the power. Power. Secondly, courage. It takes tremendous courage to turn the other cheek. For most people, turn the other cheek is this passive sort of, I guess I'm supposed to turn the... No, turning the other cheek took fierce courage. Turning the other cheek was brave, courageous. Turning the other cheek, taking, <laughs> removing your tunic, going the extra mile, took tremendous courage. You had to be so grounded and centered. It takes such spinal fortitude. You think about Martin Luther King organizing marches. You think about Rosa Parks 
on that bus. Yeah, courage. Thirdly, refusal. If you begin to get into the world of third-way thinking and you see what all the brilliant people who have talked about third-way thinking over the years, you'll often notice they talk about refusal. Third-way thinking is what happens when you begin to realize, I am going to refuse to participate in anything dehumanizing. I am going to refuse to go along with something that treats somebody as less than human. I will refuse to take part in anything that degrades the human spirit. I refuse to go along with anything that mars the divine image that resides in every human being. So for those of you who are in some situation where you're like, wait, 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 I think I need third way thinking. One of the key things is simply you refusing to go along with something that fails to respect the fundamental dignity and honor of being a human being. So what you'll often notice when people enter into third way thinking is part of it is reclaiming your own dignity and nobility, your own sense of honor that you are a human being and that is a deeply divine truth. And then uh, power, courage, refusal, creativity. Third way takes fantastic creativity. Um, oftentimes third way thinking, uh, somebody this week was, we were talking about third way thinking and she said, uh, third way is like a way of life. It's like a muscle you have to build up so that you can think third way. Especially maybe for you, it's with relatives. Uh, maybe it's at the Thanksgiving, the holidays. Maybe you are in an office situation where you are constantly on the receiving end of things where doing nothing uh, does something damaging to your soul, but you don't want to join in the insanity. Um, third way thinking, uh, one way to think about it would simply be It'll take, as you begin to think third way, it's like a muscle. So the creativity might not be there at first. You might find yourself later thinking, oh, I should have said or I should have done. Yeah, yeah, because you're learning, you're learning, you're learning, you're learning third way. And then, and this is the thing, and you'll often find this in a lot of uh, the wisdom about third way. The thing about third way is it always leaves room for your oppressor to have a change of heart. Third way leaves room. So when you turn the other cheek, instead of swinging back, there's always a chance that your oppressor will relent. There's always the chance that the person who is taking advantage of your financial vulnerability will all of a sudden think, wait, I'm literally t suing people's clothes off their back. There's always the chance the soldier will say, no, seriously, stop. You're, uh, there's always the chance that what third way does is it creates the possibility that the oppressor may repent. Now, obviously, the questions arise such as, what if you're dealing with a sociopath? <laughs> what if you're dealing with a narcissist? What if you're dealing with somebody unstable? What if you're dealing with an army that will only consider a victory if you're dead? Yes. And obviously these third way questions, third way thinking raises all sorts of questions about the very real violence in the world. Oftentimes somebody will say something like, yeah, well, if somebody breaks into my house and goes after my family, you know what, I'm going to come back at them and I'm going to, yeah, 
Yeah, maybe you will. Um, has that happened a lot? So one of the things about third-way thinking is to remember, yes, it's going to raise all sorts of these sorts of questions. It's important not to judge third-way thinking by the most extreme examples of violence that we can think of. And what does this mean for military? What does this mean for defense? Yes, of course, it raises all sorts of questions. It should. I would just argue these are the questions we should be wrestling with. Uh, what's more interesting, of course, to me is you and you taking on third-way thinking. And imagine our world taking on third-way thinking. You got to live with it. You got to sit with this. You got to like, I'm, I'm interested to hear from you all uh, what third-way thinking does to how you see the world. Because if enough of people began to think third way, organizations, institutions, faith communities, governments, if people began with the assumption that violence doesn't make the world better. By the way, we should probably do an episode in the future on the myth of redemptive violence. Maybe that'll be the next one, who knows? Um, we should probably talk about the myth of redemptive violence. But uh, that, my friends, is an episode. That's episode 142. That is an introduction to third way thinking. And uh, if you are new to Third Way, I hope, I seriously hope that your mind was blown. Mine was when I first stumbled into the world of Third Way, and we need it more than ever. And so uh, I am cheering you on to become a full devotee of Third Way thinking, um, because it is truly needed more than ever. Grace and peace, my friends.